I'm speaking with Carol Menneker of Nevada City. In 1976, Carol was a young woman living in Philadelphia when she answered a jury summons and was put on a jury in the trial of Freddie Burton. Burton was a young black inmate who was charged with the murders of two white wardens in Philadelphia's Holmesburg prison. After being sequestered for 21 days and deliberating for just three hours, Carol and the rest of the jury voted to convict Mr. Burton, who was then sentenced to life in prison without parole. He remains in prison today. For more than 40 years, Carol tried to put this intense experience behind her. But one day in 2017, she received in the mail a jury summons that brought it all back. It led her on a journey that has culminated in her first book, titled The Worst Thing We've Ever Done, One Juror's Reckoning with Racial Injustice, which will be published in April. So, Carol, you're going to read us the beginning of your book and set the scene for us? Yes, thank you, and thanks for inviting me, Joyce. Six days. For six days in June of 1976, in a Spartan Philadelphia courtroom, African-American prison inmate Freddie Burton was standing trial for the murders of two white prison wardens. Dressed in an ill-fitting sports jacket suitable for a funeral, Freddie sat nearly motionless in the stiff wooden chair at the long defense table. His dark face lit only by the harsh glare of the courtroom's fluorescent lights. His soft hands clasped as if in prayer on the table in front of him. I don't recall him ever speaking to anyone. For those same six days, I sat in another stiff wooden chair in the jury box with 11 others. The 12 of us were there to decide Freddie Burton's fate. As each witness placed a hand on a Bible and told his truth about what happened the day the wardens were massacred, I was watching Freddie Burton's face, his somber eyes and lifeless lips. I was watching for a sign, any sign, that he may not have done the horrible things he was accused of looking for clues that would tell me how in the world young Freddie Burton got himself into so much trouble. If the clues were there, I didn't see them. I couldn't see them. Maybe it was because I was only 24 years old, or maybe it was because I was white and privileged. Carol, what made you want to revisit this episode after so many years? Getting a jury summons, and it wasn't the first one I'd received in so many years, always triggered a pretty high level of anxiety for me. I think it just took me back to that time where I was sequestered for 21 days and also to the really vicious nature of the crime that I witnessed in the trial. What led you to finally believe that Freddie Burns' conviction was a miscarriage of justice? When I stopped to think about the experience, which I often did when I got jury summons, I realized that I didn't know very much about who Freddie Burton was And I only knew what I heard in the courtroom, and I suspected that maybe there was more there because there really wasn't enough to make the decision that we were being asked to make, at least not for me. So I went back and looked at the newspaper articles. I had the help of a wonderful woman at the Nevada County Library who helped me dig up these articles. What I discovered was that there was so much more to Freddie Burton's story than what I heard in the courtroom, and it really made me doubt whether what I heard was enough to make the decision that I made. And you uncovered information that suggested that maybe the DA's office had suppressed evidence that would have exonerated him or maybe made the jury feel differently. What I didn't know when I was serving on the jury was why Freddie Burton was in jail in the first place. 
How did it come to pass that he was in prison and in the warden's office the day that those murders took place? And what I didn't know was that he had been convicted of murdering a white police officer in 1970, and that conviction happened in 1972. That is the conviction that I now have grave doubts about whether or not he committed the crime. There have been multiple petitions filed on his behalf in the last decades, and each of those petitions claimed that there was prosecutorial misconduct and coerced testimony in his first conviction. So put most simply, I've come to believe that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time twice. Do you feel like there's something that could have been done differently? And I know this is going back several decades, but something that could have been done differently with the way the jurors were educated in this case? I knew that this was a sequestered jury, but I had no idea what that really meant. And I think that sequestering a jury, at least for me, was pretty traumatic. You pretty much are dropped out of the life that you have and dropped into another life where you can't see or speak with anyone that you know. You can't read the books you want to read. You can't watch the TV you want to watch. You can't call people on the phone that you want to call. And I think, at least for me and I think for some of the other jurors, if my memory is correct, the trauma of that sequestration made us all want to just go home. And maybe we were quick to judge for that reason. I think that the problems with juries is only one of many problems that need to be addressed in criminal justice reform. For me, I would say, if you are on a jury, do your best to be aware of your own biases and really focus on what's in front of you. And if you're not certain, remain not certain. Don't make a choice if it doesn't feel right to you. And do you think that there was something about you as a young white woman of privilege, and you say that you were naive at the time, that that made you a perfect jury member for this jury? Is that part of why you think you were chosen for this jury? I suspect that's the case. I can't know that. But I do think that we all grow up in whatever world we grow up in. And mine was very white and somewhat privileged. As a result, the things that were going on in other communities, the African-American community in particular, really didn't get my attention. I think that Mr. Burton was one of many African-Americans at the time who were rounded up essentially by the FBI and law enforcement because they were affiliated with the Black Panthers and other subgroups who were feared by white people. And essentially, I think what happened to him, at least in his first conviction, and to many others who are still in jail, was that they were accused and they were convicted and they were sentenced with harsh penalties and no recourse. And that's where Mr. Burton sits today. I um, understand that there is still an ongoing effort to free Freddie Burton. How old is Freddie Burton now? He is 76 years old. He's been in prison since 1970. And there is there are as a family, two generations of a family that have been trying to file petitions in the court for him for probably 40 years, and all of his petitions have been denied. Essentially, they've been denied as untimely, which means that it's too late to bring information to the courts, and meritless, which is, in my opinion, a rather unkind and ineffectual word to describe the circumstances he's in. And what do you think are the chances of those legal efforts to free him? Well, I'm sure his lawyer has great hope for this. He's been dedicated to this. He's the son of the original attorneys, and he's been dedicated to this 
for a very, very long time. In fact, his family knew Mr. Burton so well that they named him as their son's godfather. So um, Jonathan is the godson of Mr. Burton, and he's devoted to trying to get him free. I suspect that the answers are not going to come from the courts, but they're going to come from legislation in the state of Pennsylvania that will remove this felony murder rule or take away these mandatory sentences that have no recourse for them. Explain a little bit about the felony murder rule. The felony murder rule is in effect in many states, and essentially what it says is if you were present when a crime took place, even if you didn't participate, let's say in a murder, for example, you didn't actually participate in that murder, you can be held accountable as if you actually pulled the trigger or stabbed with the knife or whatever the circumstances were. And it carries a mandatory sentence of life without parole. So the judge has no way to look at the circumstances and maybe alter that. It must have a life without parole sentence. So in Pennsylvania, there are efforts right now, and there have been for some time, to revisit that rule and to make it retroactive. And if that were the case, it may help set Mr. Burton free. Have you had any contact with him? I had one phone conversation with him, and the honest truth was I was so surprised under the circumstances of my talking to him that I didn't even know what to say. I wanted to say, I'm sorry. I wanted to say, if there's something I can do to help you, I will. But All I could say is, I really don't know what to say to you. So how has this experience changed you? I wrote this book to do some private soul searching. I didn't know that it would turn me into an advocate for criminal justice reform. I feel like if my book is a tool for others who are devoted to criminal justice reform, that's a good thing to do. But I can't just walk away now that the book is done. And I've found organizations who do this work, and I am becoming part of those groups and staying informed about this information. And when there's an opportunity for me to actually do something and speak up, I will do it. How is the Carol Minniker of today different from the Carol Minniker of 1976? Well, in this context, she's the same in that she was angry. She was angry about being sequestered and removed from her family and her life. And today I'm angry because I didn't know enough to make a choice. And I would make a different choice today. So I feel I feel anger about that. I feel anger every time I witness problems with law enforcement and the African American community. I feel angry that it feels so difficult to create change in this area. I'm motivated now in a way that I wasn't when I was 24 years old to do what I can as a citizen to create change in this space. And I understand that the jury's decision hinged on the judge's instructions that are given to you right before you go in to deliberate. Um, Tell me what you thought about the jury instructions and how they affected the jury's deliberations. In our case, um, the testimonies were conflicting. The testimony, the narratives of what happened in the warden's office were opposite of one another. One narrative was that Mr. Burton actually committed this crime, and one narrative was that his co-defendant, who had already been convicted, committed the crime himself. So it was not easy to choose whether you were going to believe what a prison officer said 
or what a convicted murderer said. Those were the choices that I was faced with. But the judge's instructions revealed to us or told us about this felony murder rule. I don't recall that he called it that, but he said that if Mr. Burton was present in the room when the murders took place, he could be convicted of second-degree murder. And that is the only piece of information that I had that felt concrete to me. And when you're on a jury, you're obligated to follow the law, whether you like the law or not. Knowing what I know now, I probably would have not been on that jury if I understood that that was the law, because I would have said that I didn't feel comfortable convicting someone. But either that wasn't clear to me at the time, or all of what was happening was so overwhelming that I didn't really focus on anything but myself, which is the most tragic part of this story. I should have been much more focused on Mr. Burton. And white privilege was probably two words that, you know, weren't being used together that much in 1976. Um, How have you come to understand that in the years since then? Um, No, I didn't know what white privilege was at the time. And many years since then, if someone said I had it, I didn't know what they were talking about. What I understand now is that because I grew up, although I grew up in a Jewish family, so there was a lot of concern about the Holocaust and being different and being unsafe. And I think part of that made me feel unsafe about people who were not like me, even though it wasn't overt in my family. I think that we were a close-knit community, and the only African-American people that I knew were my mother's housekeepers. I'm embarrassed to say that, but that was the fact. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything more about them than what their function was in my life and in my home. And now that I understand more about African-American history, which is what Black History Month is about— I feel like I was way too sheltered and I didn't have enough information about what it was like to be black in America, particularly in the 70s, which was a very difficult time and only different from today. Today is also very difficult, but it was difficult in a different way. And as we have seen the murders of George Floyd and Tyree Nichols and the other events of recent years, how has that felt for you? I feel a lot of rage about that. I feel probably the same rage that Mr. Burton and his colleagues and friends felt in 1970 when there was a lot of brutality from the Philadelphia Police Department on that African-American community. It's been documented that there was this brutality, and part of their efforts were to protect their communities and to provide for their communities in the way that law enforcement and the city was not. So what I see now is... I feel like there hasn't been enough change. What's happening now is just a different manifestation of what was happening in Philadelphia at the time Mr. Burton was convicted. The only difference is now everyone can see it. There was no videotape. There were only, you know, person A's word against person B's word. But now that we can actually see it, the fact that it is not being addressed quickly is infuriating. And when you couldn't see it, you had some lame excuse for not doing anything about it. If now everyone can see it and everyone needs to step up and speak their piece about it. Freddie Burton, he was in prison for his purported role in the murder of a white police officer in Philadelphia in 1970. And that was a case known as the Philly Five. And the jury did not have that information when they made their 
decision. You you knew he was in prison, but you didn't know why. I didn't know. I didn't live in Philadelphia at the time of either one of these that either one of these crimes took place. We were not supposed to know. I think that's one of the things that made me an ideal juror. I knew nothing about either one of these crimes. I didn't live in the city at the time. I hadn't read the newspaper. And if it was publicized any more than that, I didn't see it, partly because I was just living in my own little world, but also partly because I didn't live there at the time those crimes happened. Prior to his conviction in this Philly Five case, Freddie Burton was working for the phone company, he was married, he had children, um, his wife was expecting twins, and then he was imprisoned. He was convicted of this murder of two wardens that happened happened in the prison. I just want to make sure that I'm correct that you have come to believe that he is likely not guilty of either of those crimes. I'm certain that in his first trial, he didn't get a fair trial. I'm certain that enough evidence was withheld from his defense attorney or made difficult to get that they were not able to challenge the testimony of a key witness. There's a lot of information about that, and all the petitions cite the details of that. And the witness who essentially testified against him claimed that she was forced to say the things that she said by law enforcement at the time. In the case of the prison murders, I have no doubt that he was in the room. But I do have doubts about whether he actively participated in the stabbing of either one of the wardens. And in fact, he was only convicted of the stabbing of one of the wardens. That is where it came to the point of agreeing with what a prison officer said or agreeing with what his co-defendant and convicted murderer said. So when you did have a brief chance to talk to Freddie Burton, you were a little bit at a loss to loss for words. Have you reached out to him at all, or do you have any idea what you would say to him if you did get a chance to talk to him now? What I'd say to him now is, I want to do what I can to help. And if I can't help you, I want to help others like you who have found themselves in a situation in which there's no recourse and who would like to live the rest of their lives with their families and not in prison. So I would like to do more than I did and in some small way undo what I did. And your book, The Worst Thing We've Ever Done, it will be published on April 11th. Is that right? Yes. April 11th of this year is coming right up. It's The Worst Thing We've Ever Done. And the subtitle is One Juror's Reckoning with Racial Injustice. Do you have remorse about this, about your decision? I do. I wish I'd known then what I know now. I wish I had been more mature and less self-focused than I was. But I was young, and I took to that courtroom the person that I was then. And I'm glad that I'm a different person now. 